0: Hello, Sean here. Welcome back to another episode of Um, Welcome back to part two of trying to figure out if the concept of objectivity was invented in the mid-1800s. This is part two of looking at the book Objectivity by Lorraine Daston and Peter Gallison, written in 2007, where they argue that, indeed, objectivity was, as a concept, invented in the mid-1800s. In the first episode, we contextualized a lot of their arguments, a lot of how they're going to think about objectivity, along with the other epistemic virtues that they note that objectivity is always relating to. Um, We looked in detail at one of these epistemic virtues, one that predated objectivity, called truth to nature, where scientists would, instead of trying to minimize their self-involvement as much as possible... they they thought they had a role in, for example, judgment when it comes to atlases. They wouldn't just try to draw a leaf exactly how it was. Instead, they would look at a whole bunch of examples of leaves and, in different ways, different contexts, of course. But in general, they would try to extract the essential form of the leaf, a form that was never actually in nature because it was truer than nature in a way. And we ended that with uh, this promise of, I said, one of the most tragic and uh, funny stories that I've ever come across in the history of science. Um, And this is a good way to start talking about objectivity now that we've gone through truth to nature. We go to England in 1875 and visit a scientist named Arthur Worthington so, you know, 1875, a bit late in the history of mechanical objectivity uh, for Daston and Gallison, but I guess Worthington was still predominantly working under the virtue of truth to nature. Um, yeah, of course, these things, you know, the timelines are confusing and complicated because it's different in different fields. Worthington was a physicist, professor, and fellow of the prestigious Royal Society in England, The physics he was especially interested in was fluid mechanics, and he was studying how a drop of liquid splashes. Riveting stuff, I'm sure. Like if you had a drop of milk in an eyedropper, and you dropped it upon a wooden table, did the shape of the splash follow a particular rule, or were there a few different types of ways it could splash? These are the sort of questions that Worthington was interested in. He began studying droplet splashes in 1875. Photography was still in its early days, and taking photographs of such a precise moment, the exact moment of the splash, I I think it was out of the reach of the capabilities at that time, or certainly any camera that Worthington could get his hands on. The, The point was he didn't have a camera. Instead, his method was to set up this complicated contraption in a dark room, that made a flash when the droplet hit. The idea is that if Worthington was looking right at where the droplet would hit, this flash would happen at the exact right moment, and that image of what Worthington saw during the flash would be ingrained in his mind for long enough for him to draw it. Hopefully you understand the thinking here, like, like if, you've ever been, if you've ever been outside at night during a thunderstorm and see a lightning flash. What you see, just for a moment, kind of sticks in your mind. Or at least, you know, it sticks in most people's minds. It's something called retinal persistence, if you want to impress somebody. (laughs) So this technique served Worthington well, it seemed to him. He did all sorts of droplet tests and drawings, using different liquids, dropping them on different surfaces, etc., etc. The key thing here is that he was working under the assumptions and conventions and virtues of Truth to nature. He used his scientific seeing to extract the ideal form of splash from his many observations. And what do you know? It turned out that the splashes were symmetrical, according to his drawings. Symmetry is connected to beauty, um, you know, in our culture at least. And beauty in that era was connected to truth. So this was only natural. It made complete sense. Sure, maybe sometimes in that brief moment of the flash, Worthington saw asymmetrical aspects of the splash, but he reasoned, in accordance with the epistemic virtue of the time, that these were irregularities in the individual splashes. The essence of the splash was symmetrical. And for 20 years, Worthington published these symmetrical drawings of splashes and his theories about them. Then, in 1894, he finally gained access to a camera. He took a photograph of a splash And the splash was asymmetrical. Same with every subsequent photo he took. And these asymmetries weren't like, like almost symmetrical, but slightly not. These were asymmetrical to a degree that threw Worthington into doubt. These were obviously not even close to the images he had drawn for two decades. Sometime after this discovery, Worthington wrote, quote, I have to confess that in looking over my original drawings, I find records of many irregular or unsymmetrical figures, yet in compiling the history, it has been inevitable that these should be rejected, if only because identical irregularities never recur. Thus the mind of the observer is filled with an ideal splash, an auto-splash, whose perfection may never be actually realized." The asymmetrical images were seen as mistakes, something had gone wrong, and it was up to the scientists to extract the ideal form. Worthington kept the asymmetrical images to himself, never publishing them because why would you publish mistakes? However, after a reflection, Worthington in 1895 started saying that this idea of perfect or ideal splashes should be done away with, and he argued that instead scientists should aspire to An objective view. This is the way forward, a way to prevent other scientists from losing two decades of their lives to the ideal, and is one example of the trends that have begun in the scientists around this time, trends that led to the development of mechanical objectivity. Gaston and Gallison tell another story from a decade after Worthington got his camera. It concerns two histologists, people who study bodily tissues, Santiago Ramon y Cajal from Spain and Camillo Golgi from Italy. In 1906, they both won the Nobel Prize for Medicine, sharing it. However, this sharing was not brought on by amicability. (laughs) It was a result of a friendly decision. The two histologists really did not like each other was a dislike with an origin, as far as I can tell, in histology. These were scientists who fundamentally disagreed about science to a level that it became personal. It wasn't a personal dislike raised to the level of science. Well, there was a bit of personal stuff. Golgi thought Cahal had benefited from a technique he pioneered to make the nerve cells of the brain visible, but most of their disagreement uh, (laughs) seems to be due to a difference in orientation, in framework, or, maybe it's better to say, in epistemic virtue. In fact, it's kind of funny, Uh, they even kind of argued in their noble acceptance speeches, making their case for their preferred understanding. Their disagreement had to do with the brain and neurons. Cahal argued for a view of the brain, in which neurons had a distinct individuality, they were autonomous and communicated with each other via gaps, like other forms of electricity. Golgi had a more holistic view of the brain. He didn't think neurons could be seen as fully individual and autonomous, because when he looked at a brain up close, through a microscope, he saw that the neurons were entangled with each other by the smallest, finest tendrils of their axons. You you know, essentially, at a very small level, they were entangled with each other, And Golgi thought they couldn't be untangled. They couldn't be thought of as complete individuals. He thought neurons, entangled in this way, formed a network or net. And this is what scientists should look at when analyzing the brain, not merely individual neurons. Destin and Gallison chose this dispute for an example because images were a major factor. They both disliked the images the other had produced, accusing them of inaccuracy. Cahal was more representative of the burgeoning, epistemic virtue of mechanical objectivity, using a method where chemicals were injected into the specimen that highlighted the nerves exactly as they were in that specimen, while Golgi was still primarily operating with reference to the virtue of truth to nature, since he claimed to have drawn his specimens exactly as nature shows it, or whatever, while doing all those things we talked about last episode, arranging and injecting dead specimens in particular ways, using his scientific sight to simplify the images, extracting ideal or characteristic forms, stuff like that. So not really exactly as nature shows it. They both brought their own images to the Nobel ceremony and argued their case in their acceptance speeches to the audience and the glowering disapproval of each other, presumably. The whole debate, remember, was whether neurons were irrevocably entangled with each other at a very small level, or whether neurons were separate individual entities. Obviously, the images from both men seem to depict their own view, so it's interesting. This debate is really about images and image making. To history, Cajal seems to have won the debate. Neurons are individuated, Cahal was very concerned with objectivity throughout his scientific career. Daston and Gallison see this dispute as a microcosm, of the conflict between the two epistemic virtues, truth to nature and mechanical objectivity. So objectivity, as we talked about at the beginning, is essentially an epistemic virtue that sees the elimination or at least maximal possible reduction of the subjective elements of image creation as a good thing. It's good to remove the subjective as much as possible. But more specifically, this was a movement against things seen as virtuous under the truth-to-nature paradigm. Under mechanical objectivity, quote, to be resisted were the temptations of aesthetics, the lure of seductive theories, the desire to schematize, beautify, simplify, unquote. That was quoting Daston and Gallison, by the way. But why do they call it mechanical objectivity? Well, it's because Daston and Galison want to highlight the desire that emerged for essentially direct-from-nature depictions of things. Like, scientists were freaked out about letting any, any element of subjectivity enter their image-making process because they were made aware of the mistakes of the era where truth to nature predominated, like Worthington's Droplets. Scientists began developing techniques that would directly transfer nature onto the page, with human involvement, ideally only of mechanical nature. You know, like like robotically following protocols, that sort of thing. Make, making the uh, making the scientist obey some sort of algorithm. An example, in some contexts at least, is wax molds. If there's a mechanical procedure developed to press let's say, leaves into wax, and then have that as a model of the leaf, then that's sort of like nature being transferred directly onto the page, seemingly without human involvement, without any human tampering, right? This was seen as objective. Nature directly putting itself onto the page. Humans, you know, kind of idly standing by, maybe, maybe pressing the leaf on as carefully, mechanically, robotically as possible, um, but, you know, all the subjective elements are tampered as much as possible. Of course, this is an obvious shift to depicting individual specimens rather than characteristic or ideal types. And when technology like wax wasn't available, sometimes the goal would be to turn the illustrator into a machine, like tracing objects exactly exactly was another method for directly putting nature onto the page. Daston and Gallison say, quote, While much is and has been made of those distinctive traits, emotional, intellectual, and moral, that distinguish humans from machines, it was a 19th-century commonplace that machines were paragons of certain human virtues. Chief among these were those associated with work, patient, indefatigable, ever-alert machines, would relieve human workers whose attention wandered, whose pace slackened, whose hand trembled. Instead of freedom of will, machines offered freedom from will, from the willful interventions that had come to be seen as the most dangerous aspects of subjectivity." Speaking generally, not just about image creation, instruments that recorded things without human involvement were seen as good during this period, like a thermometer for example it tells the same temperature if you're there or not daston and gallison stressed that this wasn't sufficient a certain type of scientist had to be developed too a scientist who was self-restrained and not given to interpretation right it, in other words it wasn't just enough to have certain technologies right there needed to be a scientist that matched The goal, kind of the motto of mechanical objectivity, was to let nature speak for itself. This led to the artist having more power, rather than the ideal being the artist becoming a tool for the scientist. Rather than four-eyed sight, the new paradigm meant that artists were supposed to provide checks and balances, they were supposed to keep the scientist from speculating, idealizing, etc., Quote, an effective illustrator came to embody an essential component of a composite scientific self, that part of the self capable of amplifying the moral no that nature whispered against the scientist's much-loved hypothesis, Unquote. An interesting part of that quote is amplifying the moral no. <laughs> Usually we conceive of morality as something applied to reality, applied to what is, right? So, There might be the assumption that objectivity relies upon a foregoing of morality, giving up morality. You know, getting at what is rather than applying moral ideas like that truth is beauty or something. But Daston and Gallison stress that morality plays a big role in mechanical objectivity too. It's not like the scientist just sits back and removes himself from science. Like, they still have to do science, and that requires choices. What exactly is meant by objectivity and subjectivity? Itself, that's a choice. And all these choices are made in reference to epistemic virtues or morality. Right? Again, we come back to that thing. There is no neutrality, there's no neutral way to learn from nature. There's always choices. However, There was a flip side to this, another trend within mechanical objectivity that led to artists losing power. Sometimes the art part of artists made scientists of this time uncomfortable. They worried that artists were unable to represent objects as they appeared, due to their artistic sensibilities or training. Maybe artists have an impulse to do what scientists did decades ago and make objects more aesthetically pleasing in the image than they are in nature. This thinking led to some scientists preferring to minimize the role of the artist where possible, including turning to other ways of making images, like the recently invented photography. And actually, we should talk about that a little. Since photography was invented and popularized at a similar time that mechanical objectivity was, people might be tempted to give a simple, technologically deterministic argument. the rise of mechanical objectivity like photography was invented and it made objectivity that sort of thing but Gallison and Daston and we'll see this as we continue on this episode but they argue that you know this narrative isn't true they say quote far from being the unmoved prime mover in the history of objectivity the photographic image did not fall whole into the status of objective sight on the contrary the photograph was also criticized, transformed, cut, pasted, touched up, and enhanced. From the very first, the relationship of scientific objectivity to photography was anything but simple determinism. Not all objective images were photographs, nor were all photographs considered ipso facto objective." Unquote. Right? I mean, think about taking photos. We're tempted to remove this subjective human element when we think about it, since, you know, when we hold our phones up to take a photo of what's in front of us, what we see on the screen is, at first glance, identical to what we see in real life. But let's quickly think about the subjective elements of photography. First of all, there's the frame. The photographer must decide what's in the frame and what isn't. Secondly, photos are static. They never move. When we look at something in reality, we can walk around it, we can move our eyes and our head and change our perspective, but photos are a picture of an object from only one perspective. Which perspective? That's another choice the photographer must make. There's no objective perspective of anything, right? And once the picture is taken, there are a whole bunch of things that one can do to the image, even back in 1900. Like, think of Instagram filters. For an example, obviously we're talking about a time before Instagram and digital cameras, but editing techniques still existed. Um, They're just, you know, harder to do. And, you know, I'm not super knowledgeable about the history of photography, but it seems like it was a lot more complicated in the late 1800s, early 1900s. So it would kind of of intuitively make sense to me that there would be a lot more choices to make when developing a photograph. Don't know for sure, but that's just something I'm wondering about. In fact, Gallison and Dastin remind us that, quote, Photography was not one, but several inventions, unquote. And the different types of early photography made different images. The early days of photography involved different inventors inventing different methods of photography. Dastin and Gallison say, quote, Scientific photography was only one species of 19th century photography, and objective photography was in turn only one variety of scientific photography. A big use of early photography was not to record the world we see, but to uncover a world we can't see. Wavelengths we can't see, like ultraviolet light, or things too fast for us to see, like the flapping of a bird's wings, or bullets in mid-flight. I mean, one of the inventors of motion pictures, maybe the most important one, Edward Moybridge, did it to figure out whether all the legs of a horse were off the ground at some point when the horse galloped. Um, it was due to a bet with the guy who created Stanford University. Anyways, long story. Another big use was to record phenomena that was rare or controversial. Uh, like, whether or not it's objective At least it's a picture of a Sasquatch, (laughs) you know. It's a blurry photo that we can argue about and be suspicious of, but it's definitely more objective than uh, just some guy saying that he saw a Sasquatch, right? (laughs) Another interesting thing that's related is the relationship between science, photography, and art. The first art show to include photographs in Paris happened in 1859, At the time of the symbolists and the romantics who despised naturalism in both painting and especially in photography, Charles Baudelaire was one of those critics who thought that art should reflect the artist's inner nature, not just the external nature they see. So he hated photographs because his view was that they just recorded nature, not inner nature. I guess Baudelaire was one of those people who believed in the objectivity of photography unlike Daston and Gallison. But other artists and critics thought otherwise. Because, I mean, anyone who's dabbled in photography, not, not doing it, just looking at it, can see the personal in the photographs, right? There's a big important word everyone knows for this phenomenon. It's called style, right? But this exact thing that many artists and art critics craved the personal touch, style, subjectivity. That's the exact thing that scientists were trying to avoid at this time. So along these lines, a split formed in how people thought about photography, the split between artistic and scientific photos. Objective mechanical photography was understood to be a subset of photography in general. During Truth to Nature and before that, art and science were mostly collaborators, but in the era of objectivity, they diverged in more areas. Scientists would say that their goal is to remove the self, while artists say that their goal is to inject their self. If you paint a picture of a house and it looks exactly like the house in real life, what's the point of painting it? Just look at it, dude. (laughs) Daston and Gallison say that since the era when objectivity was at its height, there have been many doubts in many fields about how objective scientific photography really is. They say, quote, Historians of photography point out the considerable skill and judgment required to make a photograph. Nature emphatically does not paint itself by itself. Historians of art call attention to the aesthetic context that has shaped the making and seeing of photographs, even scientific and medical ones. Historians of science note that 19th century photographers and scientists and their audiences We're perfectly aware that photographs could be faked, retouched, or otherwise manipulated. Almost any article of the period on how to make a photograph for scientific purposes gives pages of detailed, difficult instructions. It required effort and artifice to persuade nature to imprint its image. Thinking about this becomes clearer when we remember the context that mechanical objectivity emerged within. It emerged as a reaction to truth to nature. The main concern with mechanical objectivity was to create images in science that hadn't been biased in some way by the scientists' preconceptions or idealization. So even though photographs aren't just nature drawing itself upon the page, even though there's all these choices to make, as long as the scientists' will and ideals were kept in check, the photographs were considered objective. Therefore, the fact that photographs may require filters, sophisticated lenses, special preparation of the object, long exposure time, or darkroom manipulation, was irrelevant to the issue of objective or indexical depiction, so long as none of these operations colluded in the scientist's wishful thinking. A photograph was deemed scientifically objective because it countered a specific kind of scientific subjectivity intervention to aestheticize or theorize the scene, unquote. I think this is key to understanding the relationship between photography and objectivity. Plus, we should keep in mind that there were other forms of automatic or mechanical production of images that weren't photography, like certain forms of tracing and woodcutting that had strict enough procedures. Another technology, or Well, not really a technology, but another technological concept that had an important relationship to mechanical objectivity was machines. We mentioned this a little bit earlier, and it's right in the name of course, mechanical objectivity. Remember, this is the era of the industrial revolution, the factory. This is an era in which the machine is a really big force. Machines were important in relation to objectivity obviously on one level because science relies on particular machines, like cameras or microscopes, but also machines as an ideal. Quote, For the scientific atlas makers of the 19th century, the machine was both a literal and a guiding ideal. Machines assisted where the will failed, where the will threatened to take over, or where the will pulled in contradictory directions, Machine-regulated image-making was a powerful and polyvalent symbol, fundamental to the new scientific goal of objectivity. The machine was seen as the ideal observer. Machine-made images were seen as ideal images. Although, of course, this remained on the level of the ideal. (laughs) Reality is messier. The scientist always was involved in some way. Those choices we talked about. So it's kind of fun. In the era of mechanical objectivity, the machine was both a symbol to strive towards, the ideal, the ideal way of doing things, but also specific machines were ways of getting there. Something else that comes out of the Industrial Revolution is standardization. Remember how the goal of atlases is to standardize scientific seeing in the various disciplines? Well, a key part of the Industrial Revolution was also standardization, things coming in a few specific sizes and shapes, parts that are interchangeable, that sort of thing. Like imagine if all screws were made by hand. Whenever you needed a screw, you'd have to measure and figure out how big the screw should be, how long, how wide, etc., and then go down to the screw maker, (laughs) or whoever, whoever makes screws. But nowadays, screws come in many different shapes and sizes, yes, but specific shapes and sizes all across the world they're standardized so if a screw falls out of something that i own i don't need to do anything complicated i just go to home depot and look at the size look for the size of screw it was right standardization like this is found in all sorts of different areas of life but it makes things a lot easier it makes the industrial global economy function it's necessary for mass production so scientists at this time would sometimes point towards industrial standardization as the ideal form of standardization. What atlases should strive to achieve. It's a little tangential, but I thought it was interesting. Um, I'll just read a quick passage from Destin and Carlson. They say, quote, The machine provided a new model for the perfection towards which working objects of science might strive. Echoes of the popular fascination with the ubiquity and and standardized identity of manufactured goods crop up throughout 19th century scientific literature. Following Herschel, James Clerk Maxwell even used the mass production of identical bullets as a metaphor for atoms too similar to be distinguished. The identical form of bullets suggested a maker, and for Maxwell, the identical form of atoms pointed to a maker. Though often lost on moderns who fetishize the handmade, there was, in the 19th century, an aesthetic pleasure in identical objects. Unquote. <laughs> How funny is that? Like, I would never have expected that last part, because of the attitude that I see so much more that disdains the similar, the mass-produced, but, but it does make sense that at the beginning of mass production, there would be an attitude like that, but it's still funny to imagine. Like... I really just want to take somebody out of the 19th century and bring them to, like, an Ikea or a Walmart where they just, like, start weeping and fall to their knees because of all everything looks the same. Is <laughs> Everything's mass-produced. Uh, it's really interesting to see the changing of aesthetic values like that, like, so drastically. Actually, something I've noticed reading this book um, that I've been thinking about a lot is that Is how aesthetics, visual art, and scientific image making evolved in this time. Sometimes hand-in-hand, sometimes having opposite reactions to the same thing. Like the artistic movement known as realism arose at about the same time as the first stirrings of mechanical objectivity in the 1840s. And I wonder if that's not just a coincidence, if they have shared causes. And then when objectivity really became prominent in science, Realism in art had faded, and Impressionism and Post-Impressionism was a big thing. You know, getting their way to things that were much less realistic, like Cubism. As you can see, I don't have any clear thoughts on this. Let me know if you do, though. I just, I feel like there might be something there. Just guessing, but I think that the invention of photography played a role here. Although, a complex role, of course. Anyways, one part of the book I loved was Daston and Galison's overview of the history of scientific analysis of snowflakes. Snowflakes and fingerprints are, I think, the two main go-to examples for things that have a high level of individuality, right? No two snowflakes are the same. So, of course, they'd be something to look at to see how scientists throughout history have dealt with the issue of the individual versus the type. The specific and the category, the, you know, variety and organization, stuff like that. Obviously, it's better to read the book so you can see the pictures of the snowflake drawings, but there's still some interesting stuff to mention. Scientific drawing of snowflakes goes all the way back to the 1600s. One great example of truth to nature they mention is an 18th century scientist who drew snowflakes in various shapes, but always symmetrical, except for two. He added an apologetic footnote. Quote, number fifty-seven and eighty-four are anomalous figures of snow, of which there is an infinite variety that may be observed. (laughs) So Dastin and Gallison reply to this in a funny way. Pointing out this the absurdity of the reasoning here. They say Asymmetry and irregularity were footnotes to right depiction, even when their number was infinite. (laughs) Like, it's so funny to draw all these symmetrical snowflakes and be like, snowflakes are symmetrical. And then, in a tiny footnote, be like, yeah, there's an infinite variety of ones that aren't symmetrical, but those aren't real snowflakes. (laughs) Um, This was the typical way of depicting snowflakes during Truth to Nature. I don't need to go into any more examples. Um, The change, though comes with a guy named Gustav Hellman, who had been depicting snowflakes in symmetrical, truth to nature ways in the eighteen eighties, but then, in the early eighteen nineties, he brought a photographer friend along with him on his snowflake escapades, <laughs> whatever that was. And not just any photographer, but a microphotographer named Richard Niehaus. And what do you know? After months of attempts, they finally managed to get some photographs, and they found that snowflakes were far less symmetrical than they had thought. Hellman remarked on the photos that, quote, One misses in them the absolute regularity and the perfect symmetry that is so characteristic of the snow crystals of Scoresby and Glacier, two scientists that came before. One had become used to such a mathematical regularity in the building of the snow crystals, and is now... A bit disappointed not to find it here, but it is precisely in this departure from ideal forms and schematic figures that we find real pictures as nature presents them to us. Unquote. So you can see how this sort of thing was happening in different disciplines, right? Snowflakes, water splashes. <laughs> um, but I feel like I feel like a lot of you will still be thinking something like, "Okay, that's all well and good, very nice, but." Isn't photography the key element here? You just went on a big monologue about how photographs are not the cause of objectivity, but here's a clear example of photographs making scientists abandon truth to nature. Same with Worthington and his splashes, right? And let me tell you, I thought the exact same thing. However, Dastin and Gallison have a counterexample. Right at this time that Hellman and Niehaus were taking their photos of snowflakes in Europe, Another guy named Wilson Bentley was doing the exact same thing in Vermont. These photographs actually became super popular, spreading around the world. But his photos showed symmetrical snowflakes. And it's funny, Hellman and Niehaus really didn't like the fella. Niehaus said, quote, In many images, Bentley did not limit himself to improving the outlines. He let his knife play deep inside the heart of the crystals, so that fully arbitrary figures emerged. Unquote. (laughs) Arbitrary here, meaning not as in reality. Right, not, (laughs) obviously it wasn't arbitrary because they were all symmetrical. Niehaus also disliked the fact that Bentley used black backgrounds for the images, because the typical reader would assume that it was what is known as dark field illumination, a technique where the background is black to highlight the microscoped object. But in fact, Bentley had made the images first and then just put them on a black background later. This all gets very technical and complicated, read the full book if you're interested, but the point is that Bentley used photography without it leading him towards mechanical objectivity. As Daston and Gallison say, quote, "...merely using photography could not cure diseases of the will," unquote. Another way of saying this is that two identical photographic plates can be developed in different ways, like one can show finer details than the other, for example, you know, there, again, all these, <laughs> you kind of have to explain 1900s photography to explain how you can get different ones. It's, it's complicated. Another point against the objective nature of photography is that color photography wasn't invented at this time. Of course, you can add color afterwards, but there were only a limited number of colors and Apparently woodcuts, if done well, were better at picking out parts of complex things than black and white photos. But here's where it gets really interesting. Sometimes a scientist, in the era of mechanical objectivity, still preferred the photograph since it minimized human intervention, even if the result was less clear. Daston and Gallison have a great way of summarizing this that sounds contradictory if we hadn't added all this context. They say, quote, Accuracy was to be sacrificed on the altar of objectivity, unquote. You know, here we're starting to see a little bit of the beginning of why objectivity wasn't uh, didn't remain at the peak. You know, there was another epistemic virtue to follow it. Elsewhere, Daston and Galison say, quote, Objectivity was costly. In different contexts, it... Demanded sacrifices in pedagogical efficacy, color, depth of field, and even diagnostic utility. The shift from the object as type to object as particular was long and hard, the sacrifices painful. Mathematical models, symmetry, and perfection had to be left behind, so had the hard won knowledge of fellow scientists. Unquote. These sacrifices they talk about make it a lot more meaningful to me. That so many scientists adopted this new epistemic virtue so quickly—it uh, seems obviously over decades, but yeah, throughout this, it's it was really striking to me how different the two epistemic virtues are: truth to nature versus objectivity. Quite different ways of thinking. So yeah, they had to sacrifice a lot, but we're still not done talking about photography. There were others who opposed photography on the grounds of objectivity because. They thought that woodcuts were more objective due to those reasons I mentioned, it's easier to show detail. This debate of photography versus other ways of making images, like illustration and woodcuts, it was a very big part of this shift into objectivity. Not as a cause, but as a constant issue that continued to crop up. And often there would be a mixture. like like drawings with photographs to keep the artist in check, or photographs that were engraved by a separate person afterwards, a second eye to spot any idealization or prejudice in the photos. It was all about which method was more automatic, which one had the least trace of subjectivity. Destin and Galison go deep into the specifics of all these different methods and how photography affected specific fields, like microphotography is important for many fields, and it comes with its own set of problems and debates. Like often, moving the microscope around would be necessary to get an understanding of the specimens because looking through a microscope, it's it's a level that you're not familiar with, right? You, you have to move it around to get a full sort of understanding. But with a photo, it's just a static thing from one perspective, right? Like that choice of where to take the photo from kind of uh has different dimensions in microphotography. They just add a lot more depth to this conflict between photographs and other methods of image making. If you're interested, read the full book. They say, quote, objectivity did not imply photography, photography did not imply objectivity. Photography did not create this drive to mechanical objectivity, rather photography joined this upheaval in the ethics and epistemology of the image." Something I thought was cool to think about, um, another benefit of photography, that they mention, photography allows for the possibility of reinterpretation later, more than drawings. In other words, someone looking at a photo from decades ago might see it in a new way or see some details that had been previously missed. Whereas drawings are more likely to represent only what was seen or understood to be important at the time of the drawing. It makes sense, right? If there was something in the specimen that only future scientists would notice, then obviously it would probably not be included in the drawing. Like, we can think back to truth to nature um, when thinking about this. Like, during truth to nature, the illustrator is only trying to draw what's essential to that species. Right? But, But biologists, many decades later, might have a completely different understanding of that species, or maybe that species was kind of incorporated into a larger category. Oh no, that species is actually just this other species, but a different color or something like that. But the point is that illustrators and scientists working together would only put on the page what they thought at the time was essential. Whereas with a photograph, there's a, there's a higher chance of it capturing something in the image that they don't really pay attention to at that time. The scientist just doesn't even notice it. But later on it's noticed. You know, I want to be careful here. It's not like the photograph is more objective, but you know, I think maybe a good way of thinking about it is that an illustrator starts with a blank page, right? And they they completely fill up the page with what they want to fill it up with. Whereas a photograph, it takes in the light and then, obviously, in those early days, especially, lots of manipulation, lots of human involvement in making that image. But still, there is a bit more of a mechanical thing to it, where it can it can um, it can record photons that the scientist doesn't really pay attention to, you know, <laughs> something like that. Just a, just an example to drive this point home. Imagine if maple leaves had one vein that was particularly important for. Nutrient distribution and where this vein was on the leaf is meaningful in various ways I'm completely making this up by the way But like this vein would tell you what species of maple tree the leaf comes from something like that. I don't know But this was only discovered when microscope technology had developed to a certain degree and a scientist looked at it with that Technology and figured it out the earlier scientists would be completely blind to this leaf vein whether it appeared in the illustrations would be a result of some other criteria, but there's a good chance that the photographs of these leaves would pick up the vein, right? That's the sort of thing that they talk about with that point. All this might seem like things are heading in the right direction, maybe. Like, we've gone over the problems with truth to nature, Worthington splashes, and it seems like objectivity is a virtue we live with today, right? Isn't that why it's surprising that it was invented relatively recently? Or according to their argument, at least. Because it's like a key concept to us. Well, here's something weird. There were scientists at the time that were so concerned about objectivity that they would leave in imperfections in their images to a degree that seems quite silly to us nowadays. Like taking photographs, knowing they turned out not that great, but nobly being like, I cannot touch it. I took a photograph of the specimen, but when I looked at the photograph, the edges of the specimen were smudged and torn. However, it must remain that way. We live by objectivity. That's our ethic. Some would mention the imperfections in an almost bragging way, being like, look how humble I am and how good of an objective scientist I am. That photo is pretty shitty for my goal, my whole, the whole point I'm taking the photo for. However, I'm no god. I'm not perfect. I am a scientist. I will leave the imperfections in. That sort of thing. Like, it seems ridiculous to us, but... You know, there's this sort of pendulum swing that they talk about. Daston and Gallison say, quote, When forced to choose between accuracy and moral probity, the Alice Makers often chose the latter, as we have seen. Better to have bad color, ragged tissue edges, limited focal planes, and blurred boundaries, than even a suspicion of subjectivity. Unquote. This raises an interesting problem. Some of you may have recognized it already. Think about the point of atlases and think about the logic of mechanical objectivity taken to its most extreme. You're starting to see the conflict. Like the whole point of an atlas is to make the reader, usually imagined to be a novice scientist, learn how to see in a specific way and become familiar with the objects that that branch of science studies. Mechanical objectivity taken to its most extreme would make an atlas like, okay, that's a specimen. Don't touch it. Just take a photo and put it in the atlas. No, don't even look at it. Okay, that's another specimen. I'll look away, you take the photo. (laughs) Obviously, I'm exaggerating, but there's a point beneath it. Some sort of discernment needs to occur for an atlas to do its job. If you just collect a bunch of images of various things exactly as they individually appear, as hands-off as possible, it's not really an atlas. It doesn't really do the job of an atlas. For an atlas to be an atlas of something, an atlas of wildflowers found in Germany, an atlas of heart problems, an atlas of whales of the Indian Ocean. You have to make choices about what fits into that category, which images are best suited to represent that category. You have to make all these decisions, right? Again, there's no neutrality. There's no neutral way for nature to completely appear on a page without any human intervention. There's all these choices. But these scientists of the time were so concerned with removing as much subjectivity as possible that this discernment, these choices, they would look like subjectivity. And you could argue it is, right? Like, choosing which images to include in an atlas is very important, but nature doesn't tell you what to include. You have to choose the parameters, choose what the atlas is even about, and if each image fits. They came to a tenuous resolution. Quote, The atlas makers who pursued mechanical objectivity worked out a precarious compromise. They would no longer present typical phenomena, or even individual phenomena characteristic of a type. Rather, they would present a scattering of individual phenomena that would cover the range of the normal, leaving it to the reader to accomplish intuitively what the atlas maker no longer dared to do explicitly. Researchers assiduously sought to acquire an ability to distinguish at a glance the normal from the pathological, the typical from the anomalous, the novel from the known." One takeaway from this is that mechanical objectivity, like a lot of ethical virtues, is always an ideal to strive towards, but not one that can be fully attained. But still, this tension did undermine the authority of the atlas maker somewhat, since the natural question, if removing the self from the production of the image is the goal, The natural question is, why does that have to be some fancy scientist guy making atlases, huh? Why can't me and my buddy Carl make one? He's a really good drawer. (laughs) Of course, we know the answer to that. Mechanical objectivity is an ideal that can never be fully achieved. But I doubt everyone understood that nuance. (laughs) As usual. But this sort of tension existed even among people who did understand that nuance. Even among the most prolific scientists of the time. Because if objectivity is an unreachable ideal, then shouldn't we try to figure out how far we need to go? <laughs> right? Shouldn't we be objective about objectivity? If we can't reach it, shouldn't there be procedures to show you how far you should go? I mean, that's just one question. We'll see all the issues that crop up, all the issues that led to a new epistemic virtue taking its place. But first, we have a lot more to dig into concerning objectivity. Another reason scientists began to cast doubt on truth to nature in the 19th century was due to the pace of scientific progress. To the scientists of the time, it seemed like 19th century science was moving at a much faster pace than in the preceding centuries. This makes sense to me intuitively. Obviously, technological progress was heightened since this was the era of the Industrial Revolution, and that combined with companies hiring scientists to develop novel theories that could lead to profit. Probably that was a big factor. I don't really know, though. and It doesn't matter how true it was. The point is that scientists felt that science was moving at a faster pace in the 19th century. And science moving at a faster pace often involves the discarding of theories previously assumed to be true. This led to less confidence in the current theories for things. Scientists of this time were always saying things like, Okay, just keep in mind that this is the theory right now. It'll, it'll probably change, so just a heads up. Scientists talked a lot more about hypotheses than theories, for example, or say things like, man is made for the search of truth and not for its possession, meaning the complete truth is unattainable, but we much, must try, right? Just like objectivity. In other words, the permanence of scientific truth was threatened by the speed of scientific progress. Think about how this would threaten truth to nature, right? If the truth kept changing from decade to decade, how are we supposed to trust even the most learned scientists of our age to extract the ideal or the characteristic, i.e. the truth within the objects, the essence stripped of accident? The same scientist ten years later might extract a completely different ideal image, right? It's interesting. During the period of truth to nature, this recognition of scientific progress overturning existing theories was increasingly recognized, but it was kept in check by the belief that only certain sciences, like botany and chemistry, were changing in this way, while other sciences remained more solid, like a foundation. Sciences like how celestial bodies moved, or optics. At some point, this sturdy foundation was shattered, or at least made more wobbly. In other words, this skepticism spread to more and more fields, fields that had seemed sturdy before. Daston and Gallison say, quote, it is difficult to date just when the perceived progress of science accelerated to the point of causing vertigo for its practitioners. Unquote. Fun way of saying it. And it wasn't just new theories either, or uh, legitimate criticisms of existing ones, like Henri Poincare questioned some of Newton's foundational claims in the late 1800s. But there's also this thing that happens sometimes where old theories that had been discarded were kind of revived, they come back from the dead. Like um, like the wave theory of light, for example. People started to be like, wait, maybe they were onto something with that. The point is that scientists became a lot more cautious and treated even the most sturdy theories with more suspicion. It was with this in the background when scientists started talking about objectivity and its twin, subjectivity. Dastin and Gallison Look into the history of the two terms and discuss this late 19th century adoption of the two terms in a lot more detail. It involves the famous philosopher Immanuel Kant. Turns out, the scientists of this time adopted and adapted the two terms from Kant. However, this process was very complicated, and unraveling it brings us back to that third important thing, always tied up with objectivity and subjectivity, the self. And we'll start next episode talking about that.